TED Audio Collective. This is TED Health. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Today, one of the standout talks from this year's TED conference, Melissa J. Moore, who's the Chief Scientific Officer at Moderna. She'll help us understand how the development of the mRNA COVID vaccine gives a glimpse into a future where medicine is personalized to the individual patient. Afterwards, I'll talk with doctors Jessica Steyer and Andrea Love. They're the hosts of the popular podcast, Unbiased Science. And they'll help us think about the impact of the vaccine, what it's like to be science communicators, and get us imagining what the end of the COVID pandemic might look like. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab investing themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Support for this podcast comes from The Wonderful Company. If that name doesn't sound familiar to you, you probably know the pistachios that come from this company. Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Get snacking and get cracking with a snack that packs a protein punch. I love the various wonderful pistachio flavors. So in addition to the original flavor, I'm particularly fond of the salt and vinegar. And I keep little packets of them in my car so that I can eat and get some protein on the run. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Now, many of the people watching this talk by now will have had one, two, three, or even four doses of a messenger RNA vaccine. With billions of these shots now in arms, it's clear that this new way of making vaccines is both remarkably safe and incredibly effective. But did you know it's not the vaccine itself that's keeping you safe? It's actually you. Because the human body has amazing powers to both prevent and cure disease by making its own medicines. You just need to know what medicine to make. And that's what your vaccine gave you, simply a set of instructions for how to protect yourself against SARS-CoV-2. Now, vaccines are only the beginning. As uh, said before, the uh, advent of mRNA vaccines is heralding in an entirely new era of medicines. mRNAs give us the ability to not only prevent disease, but also treat previously in, um, intractable disorders. But before I get to that, let's talk about 
really, what is this new way of medicines really about? Well, it all comes down to proteins. Now, you may think of protein as something, simply something that you need to eat, an important part of your diet, something that's important for you to build muscle. But it's not just muscle that contains protein. Protein makes up an incredible, a huge fraction of the incredibly complicated uh, ecosystem that's your entire body. In many ways, your body uh, functions like a large city, full of myriad buildings, interconnected buildings, with lots of, of different structures. Now, just as the word building uh, fails to capture the incredible variety of structures that make up any large city, the generic term protein gives no clue as to uh, the incredible variety of molecular architectures at the molecular level. Like buildings, proteins are not monolithic. Our body makes many proteins, um, some, some like the collagen in our skin that makes our skin tough but pliable, like the, the actin and myosin in our muscles that enable us to move. Or our blood is full of hemoglobin ferrying oxygen around, antibodies protecting us from disease, and clotting factors that close up our wounds. So proteins are not only what make up the bulk of your body, they're also what make your body tick and keep you well. Now, if we think again about buildings, the, build, the structures of buildings may look quite different in the end, but they're all made of a limited set of building materials. And how those building materials, which of those building materials are used and how they're arranged and how they're attached to one another gives the buildings their final form. The same is true of proteins. If we zoom down to the molecular level, we can see that proteins, if, if we unravel their three-dimensional architecture, are actually just long strings of building blocks. And these building blocks have different shapes and different propensities to interact with one another. So it's the uh, which building blocks are used and the order in which they are in the chain that gives a protein its three-dimensional shape. But creating and maintaining a healthy human requires the combined action of over 100,000 different types of protein. And our bodies make them all. Thus, our bodies are remarkable protein factories. At the molecular level, the numbers are truly mind-blowing. Each of the 30 trillion cells in your body, that's three with 13 zeros, contains between one and 10 billion protein molecules. That means that you have as many protein molecules in your body as there are stars in the known universe. Now, um, each different cell type in your body makes a different kind of protein, a different set of proteins, like the rods and cones in my eye that are detecting light right now, and the... Um, the neurons in my brain that are interpreting that light and enabling me to see you right now. So they, it may, they make a particular set of proteins unique to it. And with, like any complex building project, you can imagine that the um, process of protein synthesis needs to be tightly regulated so that the right protein is made at the right time and in the right place. But of course, with anything so, so complicated, it's perhaps not surprising that there's an occasional mistake. 
a fault in the algorithm. Let's talk about von Gerke's disease, or glycogen storage disease one. This is due to the lack of a protein circled here in red, whose job it is to, um, to, to release stored sugars so that you can maintain a healthy blood sugar level while you're fasting. So von Gerke's disease patients can't fast. They must constantly eat small amounts of carbohydrates, including getting up every one or two hours during the night to eat raw cornstarch. Now, imagine the toll that this takes on parents. If they are ever to miss a feeding of their child, their child could slip into severe hypoglycemia, seizures, and possibly death. But even if these patients can keep up this endless feeding cycle, they are plagued by lifelong complications, including delayed puberty, frequent infections, uh, kidney disease, and liver cancer. So von Gerke's disease is just one example of a disorder where we know what protein is missing. What if we could give those patients back the ability to make that missing protein? Then we could actually treat their disease instead of just managing their symptoms. And that's where mRNA comes in. That's also where I come in. You see, I spent the better part of my career as an academic doing curiosity-based research into the fundamental principles of how proteins are made. And my specialty was messenger RNA. Like proteins, messenger RNAs are long uh, chain-like molecules composed of building blocks. The four building blocks that make up messenger RNAs form what is known as the genetic code. As their name implies, messenger RNAs carry messages, messages that are translated by your body in order to create proteins. Thus, messenger RNAs are the language of life. And the human body has a lot to say. So, every, like proteins, your cells are chock full of messenger RNA. Every one of your 30 trillion cells has hundreds of thousands of messenger RNA molecules. Messenger RNAs are an essential component of all living organisms. So when you are eating protein-rich foods, you're not only eating protein, you're also eating lots of messenger RNA. Your body takes the messenger RNA in the food that you consumed, breaks it down into those component parts, and then builds new messenger RNAs specific to your needs. Now, let's, uh, this, this continual uh, destruction and rebuilding is a feature true of almost all proteins and messenger RNAs in your body. Let's take, for example, the, the circadian clock. This is the uh, timer in your body that tells you when to be uh, active and when to sleep. The proteins that make up this clock appear and disappear with remarkable regularity every day. The way that this is accomplished is that Uh, your body makes the messenger RNAs that encode those proteins appear and disappear every day. Every day for, the re for your entire life, you get your daily dose of clock messenger RNAs uh, producing clock proteins. Now, 
Three properties of proper medicines are that their effects are of limited duration, that their effects are dose-dependent, and that they can be given over and over again to produce the same effect. mRNAs are transient. The amount of protein produced is dependent on how much of that mRNA is present, and they can be induced over and over again to produce the same effect. So, wow, it seems so simple. If there's a protein that's missing to treat a disease, then we could simply give a few copies of an mRNA to the body for it to produce that protein. If that protein's only needed once, then maybe a single dose would suffice. If a protein is needed um, multiple times, then we can, we can dose mRNA over and over again. And that's exactly what's happening. So when I went on clinicaltrials.gov this morning, uh, it turns out that there are uh, over 175 clinical trials now open using mRNA-based medicines that are recruiting patients. Another 54 clinical trials are waiting in the rings, ready to be opened. So there, this is, there is a coming uh, tsunami of mRNA medicines. Um, last year, Moderna and AstraZeneca reported positive results from a clinical trial where patients who, during open-heart surgery, were dosed with messenger RNA injected directly into their heart muscles that told their heart muscles to grow new blood vessels in order to get around clogged arteries. In other clinical trials, we are repeatedly dosing uh, patients with inborn metabolic errors to treat their metabolic disease. In fact, one of those clinical trials that's currently recruiting patients is for von Gerke's disease. And for cancer patients, we're creating personalized cancer vaccines. These vaccines are meant to train their bodies, their immune systems, to attack their cancers. These are truly personalized medicines, one vaccine for one person. Now, for personalized cancer vaccines to be the most effective, we need to get them made and back to the patient as quickly as possible. We aim for a turnaround time of 45 days. By January of 2020, we had already manufactured, quality-controlled, and delivered to several dozen patients personalized cancer vaccines. So we had the know-how and the capacity to manufacture vaccines quickly. Thus, when the sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus was posted to a public web server on January 10th, 2020, we got immediately to work. Within two days, we had agreed with our collaborators at NIH on exactly which form of the spike protein to put in our vaccine. Because we had done so so many times before, it then took our mRNA design team just one hour to design the mRNA that we immediately... that we immediately put onto our um, manufacturing equipment. We were then able to make that RNA, get it quality controlled, fill finish, and shipped off to NIH for the clinical trial in 45 days. Now, what I find... 
What I find truly remarkable is that that mRNA sequence that took us one hour to design is the same mRNA sequence that went into your arms, that ended up in SpikeVax, our now fully approved vaccine. One hour to design a medicine that has saved countless lives. It still gives me goosebumps every time I talk about it. So what does the future hold? Well, um, I've already told you about regenerative medicine and um, personalized cancer vaccines. For cancer patients, we can also uh, send in, by directly injecting messenger RNA into their tumors, we can send in instructions telling the tumor cells to self-destruct. Or having the tumor cells send out signals to the immune system to beckoning the immune system to attack. For patients with autoimmune disorders, we can send in signals that tamp down their overactive immune systems. And we and others are rapidly making many more messenger RNA vaccines. Because messenger RNA vaccines can be produced so quickly uh, and rapidly, they're really well suited for newly emerging diseases as well as other um, viruses like the flu that, uh, that new, where new variants come out every year and the vaccines need to be updated. But one of the exciting things about mRNA medicines is we're not limited to sending in the instructions for one protein at a time. mRNA medicines can be easily multiplexed. Therefore, we're working on a, a combination vaccine for COVID, flu, and uh, respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, all leading causes of um, hospitalization and death in the elderly. And we're hoping that this will then be an annual booster that you will get just like the flu vaccine. So finally, the very modest footprint that of the manufacturing equipment for making messenger RNAs um, means that they can be made almost anywhere in the world. And to take this to an extreme, the American Defense Department started a program in 2019, and we're working with them, to miniaturize the entire process so that it can be fit into a single shipping container for rapid deployment anywhere in the world. So... So to finish, I hope I've convinced you that we have entered an entirely new era of medicine. Having learned to speak the language of mRNA, the language of life, we can now use it to create medicines that are just for one person, like a personalized cancer vaccine, or can be rapidly produced and um, distributed to entire populations like the COVID-19 vaccines. And the best part... The best part is we're simply tapping into your body's own ability to make its own medicines. Thank you. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. 
<laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this show comes from Brooks. I've really gotten into running this year, so I have to tell you about the Ghost 16 from Brooks because this shoe is kind of a game changer. I found the cushioning to be next level comfortable. It's incredibly soft, yet surprisingly lightweight. It's literally comfortable every time my foot hits the pavement. The Ghost 16 from Brooks isn't just a shoe for me. It's a daily boost for my runs. Visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hey listeners, it's Shoshana again. I'm really excited to welcome two wonderful guests to the podcast, Dr. Jess Steyer, who's a public health scientist and health services researcher, and Dr. Andrea Love, an immunologist and microbiologist. And they co-host the incredible Unbiased Science podcast, which dispels misinformation and misconceptions across a number of science and public health topics. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Roshana, for having us. We're very excited to chat with you. So you've both become the go-to resources for accurate, up-to-date information for so many people during the COVID pandemic. How did you get into sharing scientific content geared for a general audience online? So we were friends from college. We both went to Stony Brook University. We kept in touch over the years after graduation, and we wanted to kind of join forces. We're two female scientists. We're in two very different scientific fields, but we really bonded over vaccines. When I became a mom, I joined all these mom groups on Facebook, and I was flabbergasted by the amount of misinformation and just vaccine nonsense that was swirling around in those groups. And then COVID happened. And it was like science by headline, things getting picked up by the media, taken totally out of context. And our friends and family members were approaching us for information. We were individually serving as a resource. And then we were like, you know what, let's just do this joint Instagram live or Facebook live. And we realized, wow, we have something here. Andrea brings that microbiology perspective, immunology, of course, super relevant during a pandemic. And I'm public health brain, data science and all that stuff. And this idea of making science accessible for the layperson is what prompted us to do a podcast. That's really where it all started. <laughs> I'm in microbiology and immunology. And, you know, even before the pandemic and certainly outside of vaccines, I had always taken a personal interest in dispelling misinformation about these other sorts of topics like GMOs and genetic engineering and trying to allow people to navigate the internet without being scared every time they read something about coming in contact with or consuming or whatever. And so having the platform to branch out beyond just COVID-19 has allowed us to serve that resource as well. Absolutely. Andrea, we're seeing new problematic variants crop up every few months, right? So where are we headed here? Do you think viral evolution is going to slow down? Obviously, there's a lot of factors at play here. So the way viruses mutate is 
all a process of random errors during replication. And a virus requires a host in order to reproduce. It can't exist outside of a host cell for very long. Um, So once it gets inside those cells, it's replicating very quickly because it wants to make many baby viruses so that they can then go spread and so on and so forth. The rate of mutation is dependent upon how many people are getting infected and how many people are getting transmitted to. Obviously, the faster we see spread, the more potential mutations can arise. So you want to think of the virus as an organism that's trying to survive. Um, So if it can infect a new species or if it's able to evade our immune system, all of these things are beneficial in the context of the virus. And those are all going to be mutations that will exist if they occur. The biggest thing that we have control over is slowing down the rate of transmission. How many people are infected at a given point in time? Right now, we saw a huge surge. And now we're seeing subvariants of Omicron. And these seem to enable the virus to better evade the immune response, the protection conferred by the vaccines. And so that is, of course, concerning. However, it's not going to be a situation where we're likely going to see huge surges and hospitalizations and deaths, because even though it's different, it's not different enough that our immune system is going to be completely useless. We have antibodies, they bind to the virus and they neutralize it or prevent it from even getting into our cells in the first place. But even if the virus gets into our cells, we have other layers in our immune response, our memory immunity, and that includes our memory T cells and memory B cells, which can be active activated to produce new antibodies, to minimize the severity of illness, reduce hospitalizations, and reduce deaths. So we're probably never going to be free of COVID, but we're going to be able to have it controlled. And eventually, once we're out of the crisis phase of the pandemic, will lead into an endemic phase. Well, that's a great segue. So Jess, what does the end of the COVID pandemic really look like? As Andrea said, we're not quite at that endemic level yet. It's not something like the flu where we can really predict seasonality and things like that. There's no agreed upon threshold, like a switch gets flipped when we could say, oh, it's endemic now. There are differences of opinion, even among scientists, epidemiologists, infectious disease specialists. Should we look at case rates? Should we look at fatality, mortality rates, things like that? So some people refer to this, we're in this subacute phase of the pandemic. It's like we're not at that emergency level back in March of 2020. Most people are thinking, oh, look, like Omicron is milder. Fewer people are dying. Fewer people are being hospitalized. But that's not necessarily the case. As Andrea just said, there are these new variants. There could be future mutations that are actually more virulent or that do lead to more severe illness and heaven forbid, you know, mortality. So there's no clear answer to this. We're somewhere in this middle state. We're definitely not endemic yet. It's clear that we can no longer rely on individuals' behavior to really curb this. I think we've opened up the floodgates. We're relying more now on vaccinations and antivirals and monoclonal antibody treatments and things like that. So this is going to be something that we do learn to live with, but I'm not comfortable saying it's endemic. Andrea, what does a world with endemic COVID look like? We obviously can't live in a crisis pandemic phase. We eventually will get to a point where there is some degree of predictability. And so endemic doesn't mean 
no cases. And it doesn't mean it's a mild illness in and of itself. It just means that the disease burden is predictable and we understand, you know, the risk factors involved and a benefit with COVID is we have some mitigation measures that we can implement, including vaccination, as is the case with other endemic diseases, is that there's going to be an estimated or anticipated case burden every year, hospitalization and a mortality burden. And it's really unfortunate, you know, such as the case with infectious diseases, but there are a lot of endemic things that people don't realize, you know, HIV is endemic in many places around the world. Measles, smallpox at one point was endemic. Polio is endemic. And, you know, many of these are controlled through vaccination and through treatment modalities. And if I could just jump in, I think our country's really suffering from pandemic fatigue, right? A lot of people have come to think of it as, oh, the pandemic is over. This is so mild now. We're still seeing 100,000 cases per day, and that's likely a major underestimation because so many people are testing at home with the rapid antigen tests, still seeing over 300 deaths per day. We're not out of this yet. We're still really in the thick of it and watching how this thing evolves. And even when we consider something endemic like seasonal influenza, like we know it's coming every year, we have an annual vaccine that is updated every year to account for typically the four most common flu strains that we're going to experience. Um, But even then we see gaps in vaccine coverage. Some people don't bother getting the flu because they claim they've never gotten the flu and therefore they don't need it. And let me tell you, as someone who has had influenza, it is nothing to turn your nose up at. It can be very severe and clearly can be fatal, especially in high risk populations. Absolutely. Well, and that brings me to my next question. Based on what we've seen over the last two plus years with less than stellar vaccine uptake for SARS-CoV-2. Just is it feasible to think that vaccinating and boosting will play a big role going forward? Absolutely. I think vaccines are critical. We're working on some really innovative vaccines, the universal vaccine that could potentially protect against all future strains of COVID, which would be absolutely incredible. This mRNA technology is just amazing and sort of opening up the doors to all kinds of new uh, advancements. I see vaccines as the Swiss cheese model, right? It's one of these key layers of protection, and it's always best to prevent whenever possible. So our emphasis will always be on vaccination, especially since we can't really rely on human behavior at this point since the floodgates have been opened. We're still trying to educate people on the importance of getting vaccinated. We're definitely fighting a battle of mistrust in the scientific establishment. There's no easy answer to how we can combat this vaccine hesitancy, but we're exploring the world of some targeted information campaigns and really understanding reasons for hesitancy and hoping that we don't necessarily need to mandate vaccinations, but maybe that's the direction that we have to head in. And I was just going to add when we're talking about controlling or emerging from a pandemic, reducing disease burden is the ultimate goal. And so utilizing all of these tools, you know, vaccination, antivirals, especially for those at high risk to reduce symptomatic illness, likelihood of progressing to severe illness and likelihood of death, those are all going to get us below that somewhat amorphous threshold of where pandemic is and where endemic is. And Andrea, you both have actually said that this pandemic is certainly not over, right? As much as we all wish that it was. What do you tell people, your followers, family members, friends who've decided it's no longer an issue that we need to worry about? 
it's tough. We've had this discussion a lot because there are other SciComm accounts that take a little bit more of a fear-based approach. And we want to balance the science with pragmatism and realistic expectations, right? We know people are not going to coop themselves up indefinitely. We know people, you know, want to feel a sense of normalcy. And we've all been traumatized essentially over the last couple of years. And so we talk about mitigating risk when you're undergoing certain activities. If you're having a family gathering and someone's high risk, taking a rapid test as like a checkpoint, you know, it's not going to catch every case, but that's going to catch your most contagious cases of COVID, emphasizing that staying up to date on vaccinations. And we're just going to add COVID-19 into that box of up-to-date vaccinations. You know, I hate using the phrase living in fear because it's not living in fear. It's just being aware and being vigilant. And I'd love to to echo that. I think we need to just bring it back to the basics. So just basic hand-washing, hand hygiene, you know, scrape under your nails, don't forget your thumbs. We have to exhibit some common sense. Don't go to work or don't hang around people if you have a cold. Maybe don't go into an indoor setting with a thousand different people in close proximity if you have a high-risk individual in your household. If you're outdoors, do you need to wear a mask? No, probably not. So maybe reserve some of those behaviors for high-risk situations. As Andrea said, we don't want to live in fear, but we do want to have all eyes open and realize, no, we're not out of this completely. Let's mask up when we are in certain situations and are around certain people. You know, maybe we can start being a little bit more conscious about whether or not we're germy and not exposing other people to that. We don't live in bubbles. All of our actions impact the people around us, and we do have to take some personal responsibility for our health and for the health of our communities. Andrea, what's been surprising to you about being in a position to educate through communicating science to the public during this pandemic? So I think how quickly a buzzword or a piece of jargon can get manipulated for malicious intent. There are some key players. They basically co-opt a legitimate scientific term and then they weaponize it. To debunk that, it takes at least 20 times more effort to get people to unlearn this false claim about vaccines or about whatever. It takes going back to the fundamentals of biological science in order to get to the explanation of why this false claim is false to begin with. And so it really underscores the importance of science literacy in our society, not just, you know, in the context of pandemic, but across all fields, because Anybody can share anything on the internet and there's not a lot of source vetting or fact checking going on. And so it becomes very hard to navigate things as an individual to really understand what they should be believing and what they should be steering clear of. Yeah, it's been such a challenge. And we spent a lot of time on this show kind of talking about that issue specifically because it's so critical and there aren't clear solutions for. But what's been surprising to you over the last two plus years of your social media work and the podcast? The power of social media is unbelievable. Is this the first pandemic? No, but it's the first pandemic in the time of social media. And I think it also has taught me that we need to integrate communication skills and the training of scientists. Um, this has sort of been something that we've learned on the go. This really is a skill. And I think it's important that scientists have communication in their tool belts or at least control of the information that gets disseminated. The other thing that's really surprising to me is 
how viciously anti-science some people are. We get death threats, horrible emails and messages, people showing up at our business partners' houses. I mean, all kinds of wild things. And it's sad to me. I live in my scientific bubble and now the level of anti-science sentiment is really scary. It underscores to me that we really have our work cut out for us. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much again, Shoshana. It's always great connecting with you. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us. It's always great chatting science with other like-minded individuals. Thanks so much for listening today. This episode was produced by Transmitter Media and fact-checked by Ted. And special thanks to Anna Phelan, Sammy Case, Grace Rubenstein, Maria Lagis, and Colin Helms. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Stay well, and I'll talk to you next week. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.